This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. So, Josh, I know you have a recent iPhone and you use Face ID, and it must be difficult since you wear that mask all day long, but I guess you've trained it to recognize the mask. Um, <laughs> but the whole question of Face ID and the mask is is kind of interesting. Um, we, we saw a story recently about a uh, security researcher who was planning to give a talk at a hacking conference um, claiming that he could crack Face ID. And then all of a sudden, he kind of canceled his talk it makes you wonder, was he wrong? Did he find out that his method was wrong? Has Apple improved Face ID with the latest phones? Well, it turns out what he said is that although he was able to successfully reproduce these you know, Face ID hacks on iPhone 10 under certain conditions, he said he wasn't able to reproduce this on iPhone 10s and 10s Max. So basically he said, you know, I don't know how relevant this is anymore, so I'm just going to pull my talk. I, I don't know how many people are still using an iPhone 10. Apple's not selling it because now they want you to buy the latest models. What I find interesting about this, though, is that it makes it sound like the iPhone 10s and 10s Max have a little bit different way of doing Face ID. If you're able to fool the iPhone 10, but you're not able to fool the 10s and 10s Max with the same methods, um, then Apple may have actually made some maybe hardware improvements possibly in uh, in the newer models that make it less susceptible to using a mask to uh, to get break into somebody else's phone. Well, this wouldn't be surprising. Uh, remember, the iPhone 10 was the first iPhone with Face ID, and they've had a year to work on it and to improve it. So it makes sense that they've done something, and maybe they have found, they collect usage data unless you opt out, and they certainly know how many times Face ID fails and people have to redo it. So maybe they're able to correlate that data in, into a way of improving the algorithm and the software and even the way the, the cameras work. It could be. And by the way, if anyone is wondering, you know, wait a minute, what, what is this you're talking about? We're using a mask to bypass Face ID? Is that even possible? <laughs> um, well, it turns out that, uh, th this was before we started our podcast. It was way back in November 2017 that there were some Vietnamese researchers who were experimenting with Face ID right when the iPhone 10 first came out. And they were successful developing a couple of different masks um, that could successfully get past Face ID. Now, when Apple first announced Face ID, they talked about how, oh, we went to Hollywood and, you know, we had all of these, you know, really uh, incredible mask makers, you know, try to fool Face ID and none of them were able to accomplish this. Um, well, these researchers uh, from Vietnam were able to do some things that I guess the Hollywood guys weren't really thinking of. They were thinking about it more strategically rather than let's try to make something that looks as much to a human like someone else's face as possible. Let's see if there's maybe some things that we can tweak to fool Face ID specifically. It may not look like a human face to a human, but maybe we can trick Face ID. And so they were able to do that. That was way back in November 2017. So uh, so this does sound like a good thing if the 10s and 10s Max uh, both 
have some better functionality to better detect faces, human faces, that's a great thing. If you're not a regular listener to the podcast, you might not realize that this is just kind of a running gag that Josh always wears a mask <laughs> so people can't recognize him. He is in a secure location in a Faraday cage and no one knows what Josh looks like. I don't even know what Josh looks like. We, when we record the podcast, we use Skype so we can see each other and interact. But all I see is this kind of black mask. And a hoodie too, by the way, because everyone knows that hackers always wear hoodies. All hackers wear hoodies. Yes, indeed. Um, but you're not like a 400 pound guy on a couch <laughs> in your parents' basement. That, that, that's also true. I, or is it? Okay, so I spotted a story that really made me lull. In fact, I sent you an email with the link and I said, this makes me lull. Google is releasing an ad blocking feature for its Chrome web browser. Google. Uh -huh. Ad blocking. Yeah. Google that makes most of its money from ads, they're releasing an ad blocking feature. They're saying that, well, these abusive ads and we're going to block them. But by the way, our ads are fine. So this is in some ways an abuse of monopoly power because Google does have such a huge share of the ad market, particularly on mobile. They're just saying, we're just going to block all the ads we don't like. But by the way, our ads won't be blocked. So take out ads with Google and you know people are going to see them. Yeah, that seems um, kind of slimy, actually. I mean, everyone knows. Ooh. Well, I mean, come on. You know, Google, everybody knows that Google really makes their money from advertisements. That's right. How, how else do you think that they can do so many things for quote unquote free? You know, they give you free email, they give you a free search engine, they give you a free web browser. And oh, and by the way, our operating system for mobile phones is also free. It's totally free. Everything's free. Of course, they have to be making money. And we know that the way that they make money is primarily from advertising. So for, <laughs> for, for Google to say, oh, yeah, we're going to block ads, just not ours. But you don't want to block ours, right? Because ours aren't intrusive. We, we're, we're only blocking the bad ads, yes. the intrusive ones. Yes. So it's not a problem. There's no, there's no monopoly here. Yes. The, the thing is, um, I don't know what um, the Chrome browser's usage statistics are, but you can imagine that everyone on the Android phone uses it. Everyone with a Chromebook uses it, obviously. I don't even know if you can use a different browser on a Chromebook. Um, Mac users are certainly more likely to use Safari. iOS users, in fact, when we were talking about this before the show, you were pointing out that you're one of these weird people who uses... Which browser do you use on <laughs> iOS? Uh, I use a couple of different browsers. I, I sometimes use Chrome, but more often lately I've been using Brave. Okay, never heard of that one. But So what you do is you press and hold the link and copy it and go to the other browser because you can't switch the default browser on iOS. True. Um, like you can on the Mac. That's right. So it, it's true that, go that Google's uh, going to get an awful lot of traffic from Android, but less for Mac. And of course, Windows people are using Microsoft browser. I don't think Chrome is the real popular browser on Windows. In any case, it uh, I, I wouldn't have used the word sleazy as you did, but that's a pretty good description of it. It's, it, it's, it's, it's of questionable ethics. Questionable. Maybe, maybe that's a better way to put it. Questionable ethics. I like that. So you use Twitter and I use Twitter. And Wired has an article that says your old tweets give away more location data than you think. In the show notes, I'll link to an article I wrote for the Intego Mac security blog where I talk about deleting old tweets and deleting old Facebook posts because this is something I did last year. I decided, why are these old tweets living on my Twitter account? They are ephemeral. I use Twitter as a sort of a conversation or to retweet news or 
to rant about things and I don't need tweets that are five years old. So I've deleted all my old tweets and every once in a while I go through and delete everything that's more than like a month old. Um, so if you look at my Twitter account, you'll see that there's only like a few hundred tweets, but that's, I've tweeted a lot more than that. I've never turned on the location in any of the apps I've used with Twitter. I don't want people to know where I am. Now, maybe sometimes I'm out and I take a picture. Ooh, here's where I, you know, see this wonderful landscape where I am or this monument that I'm looking at. But I don't want people to know that I'm not home, for example. Right. Um, if, if I tweet with a location that says that I'm in Iceland, well, they're going to know that I'm not home and I'm not that worried about someone coming to the farm and, and you know, burglarizing my house. But still, it's just a bad practice. So I have never put location data in my tweets. Have you? Um, I've, I've turned it on a couple of times, but I very, very rarely use this. In fact, I think at this point, I probably have that functionality turned off um, just because I don't, I, I mean, it's so rare for me to ever want to actually tag my location in a tweet. It's just not really necessary. If I want to let someone know where I am, or as you suggest, where I was recently, it's going to be kind of evident from the thing that I'm posting anyway, right? Yeah. So why do I really even need to tag my location in the tweet? So basically what these some researchers found, uh, they published a paper about some research they had done on tags in tweets, location tags that they've found in past tweets. Back in 2009 is when Twitter introduced this feature, the ability to actually tag a location in your tweet. And the original application programming interface for this, what it would actually do is give an exact geolocation. It would use your precise GPS coordinates. And eventually Twitter changed that. They, they decided, you know, I don't think that we really need to be that specific on the location so we can call it something else and we don't have to, to record that exact data. But that didn't change until April 2015. And so then there are a lot of people who have older tweets than that that have a location tagged. And what they were able to find is if they ran this program that they developed, a tool that they're calling LP Auditor, Location Privacy Auditor, they say, if we run our tool against somebody's Twitter account, we can see all the places that you were before that date in 2015. So maybe that includes your home. And this could, of course, help create a profile that every Tuesday morning you tweet from a certain place and every Friday evening you're in another place. And this could lead people to assume that you might be in those places at those specific times. Right. And, and so you could probably make a fairly good guess that, oh, that's probably where they live. That's probably where they work, among other things. You know, if you don't want people to know that kind of thing about you, and the reason that I thought this was worth mentioning on the show is because, as, as we talked about, this is something that we have an, a nice article on the Intego Max Security blog that you can read and find out how to delete all those old tweets. Because at this point, yeah, it's probably a good idea to do that, especially knowing that this tool is out there. Yeah, even if these are a few years old. Um, Josh, do you read mysteries, crime fiction, thrillers, things like that? Um, not regularly, but I have, uh, I have read a few good novels like that. You know, sometimes you get these things where there's a serial killer taunting a detective and sending them letters and stuff. Uh -huh. I could imagine someone doing this with tweets and then <laughs> they would find where the person is by somehow getting their location data oh. through something like this. 
I should make a film treatment based on this. Actually, I think in last year's series Homeland, there was a thing where they figured out where people were by somehow getting their location data um, from Twitter. But I can't remember entirely. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to have some more interesting security news about, oh, I don't know, GoDaddy injecting JavaScript into people's websites. And the short thing is that that's not a good idea. And a company offering $2 million for people to find iOS vulnerabilities. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Indigo's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today and then use the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save 50%. That's Intego Podcast to save 50% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, so we all have routers in our house. You have a router. I have a router because we pronounce it differently. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and we've talked about the risks of router vulnerabilities many times. And, and I know that you have said over and over, if you have a really old router, get rid of it, buy a new one. They're not that expensive anymore. Over here, you get a router from your ISP, or at least you get a router that you use to connect. I don't use my ISP's routers for Wi-Fi because my house is too big, so I have a mesh Wi-Fi system. But most people just plug their router in and never do anything. An article in Wired has a great headline. Your old router is an absolute goldmine for troublesome hackers. And you've been saying this, you know, ever since we started the podcast. It seems like there are a huge number of vulnerabilities in routers and that people are starting to take advantage of this. Right. In fact, um, so this is something that was seen a lot in 2018 and uh, you know researchers are expecting that this could continue to increase the number of attacks on people's home routers if you think about it i mean there's really a lot of things that you can do that that router that little tiny box is actually a computer you could think of it that way it's got an operating system it does have an operating system and it, it has a fair amount of computing power and so there are a variety of things that you can do if you break into somebody else's router. And so criminals have started to figure this out. They've started to uh, use uh, people's home routers that have been infected to, you know, attack other uh, attack websites, to mine cryptocurrency, send spam. There's all sorts of things that you can do once you've compromised a device. Just, I mean, it would be 
very similar to somebody taking control of somebody else's computer, except now um, the other thing about a router is that it's also a privileged position on your network because it is a man in the middle between you and everything on the internet. Normally that's not a problem, but if someone else is in your router, they can spy on your traffic. And they might even be able to hack your smart light bulb. <laughs> they probably can. <laughs> See, that's one of the worries with this smart home stuff. We have more and more devices that do connect to the network. I have two smart light bulbs in my office. I have a fan that connects to Wi-Fi. I have a Dyson fan. It's really funny when I bought this last summer, you know, you plug in a fan, you have to download a firmware update. That's just kind of strange. It is. There, there's refrigerators that have uh, Wi-Fi internet access. I believe my washing machine can even do that. I've never set it up, but I think it can send you a notification when it's done. So we have all these devices that are accessing networks and your router, if someone gets through your router, they can hack those devices. And again, it's not that your um, smart light bulbs are gonna rise up against you, but it's that they're gonna be used for other malicious purposes and potentially attempt to attack your other devices on the network. Right. So this, this Wired article um, brings up that this is a problem, but they don't really present a solution. Um, so what is the solution? Yes, one of the things you could do is develop the practice of buying a new router or router every year. So you just said router. That's good. Yeah, you, yeah you're rubbing off on me a little bit, Kirk. <laughs> you, you could buy a new one every year that can get a little expensive and it might be a little excessive too. Uh, I don't know that you necessarily need to buy one every year, but maybe every other year or keep an eye on, you know, firmware updates for your router. And if you notice that it hasn't gotten a firmware update in a while, maybe it's time to buy a new one. The other thing that you can do, and this is a little tricky because there's not really a good one source that you can go to to try to find answers to this. But there are some routers that have a self-updating capability. So that in itself doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be completely free of vulnerabilities or that it's going to patch itself in time or even that the manufacturer is going to continue releasing updates when there is a new problem. But at least for the life of that of that product, as long as that manufacturer is going to make it, they're supposed to be giving you that automatic update capability. So there are some brands we'll link to, um, to a website that has some information on self-updating capabilities in routers. It's definitely worth researching and, you know, maybe you'll come across one that could work well for you that seems to have a fairly good track record of doing this. Is my setup using a separate router for Wi-Fi and for internet access more secure? Uh, in other words, the fact that my Wi-Fi isn't going to that main router that's accessing the internet, not directly. Does that provide an extra level of protection through network address translation from the one router to the other? Well, I would say that probably the most secure way to set things up, if, if you have to have Internet of Things devices on your network that need to communicate to the public Internet, but they don't necessarily have to be on the same network as your computer or your phone, then the ideal way to set this up is to actually have three routers where you've, you've got one that's sort of the home base, I guess you could call it, connected to your modem. And then from there, you've got two different routers that things can potentially connect to. You've got one router that's solely dedicated to all of your crazy Internet of Things things that might get hacked. 
And then you have your other router that's for your secure, you know, devices on your internal network that need to be kind of kept in a, in a separate bucket. Okay, so the, the mesh Wi-Fi system I use is the Netgear Orbi, and it allows me to set up one network plus a guest network. So you could actually use the guest network for those devices. The problem with that is I want to control them from my iPhone, so they need to be on the same network. Yeah, so there are some challenges there, and that's that's one of the biggest things that I find is a problem with IoT, Internet of Things devices, is that it's not necessarily something where you can just say, oh, I'll just throw all those things on another network. Because a lot of times you do need that ability to interact with something on the same network. Yeah, to be able to control it. Yeah, so so this is a bit of a challenge. And um, I think one of the biggest things that you know a lot of researchers talk about is that maybe we're getting to the point where there perhaps should be some regulation, government regulation. Bruce Schneier is a very well-known a security researcher, cryptographer, and he has been saying for a couple of years at least that as much as he says, I don't like regulation, I do think that this is something that we really need to strongly consider because how else are we going to force manufacturers to actually create secure products? What's the incentive for them to, to invest the time in making a secure product if you know they're trying to undercut the competition and and make things as cheaply as possible you know unless there are some regulations to say you must meet this minimum level of security before you can sell your product in this country who's to encourage people enough to make their products more secure i seem to remember that godaddy is often in the news with security issues this time people have found out that they were injecting javascript into people's personal websites JavaScript is part of what runs the internet, or at least web pages you see, are often rendered with a combination of HTML code and JavaScript. JavaScript enables all sorts of fancy ways to display content on your website, to update it, but JavaScript can also be a security risk. In fact, if you're in Safari and you turn on the develop menu, there's a menu item called disable JavaScript, and some people want to do that when they're testing websites to see how they'll work without JavaScript. So GoDaddy injecting JavaScript into customer websites is really a problem because when I build a website, I expect that what is going to be displayed in someone's browser is exactly what I have decided to display. And I, my personal blog runs on WordPress and I have plugins and a lot of the plugins use JavaScript, but I don't expect there to be any more JavaScript that I didn't add. Right. And what happened here was that, uh, and by the way, this was interestingly discovered by a web developer because of a bug in Safari that caused his page to kind of lock up and not load. And that kind of led him to sort of look into this a little further. What it turns out is that GoDaddy is saying that they had this metric system. It wasn't personally identifying you or doing anything like that. All we were doing was trying to identify some internal bottlenecks in our systems by taking by running some code on your computers which is kind of interesting <laughs> but well it's a good excuse yeah yeah so they're saying we don't collect any user information all that we collect is stuff that allows us to improve our systems optimize dns resolution and you know improve network routing and server configurations all that kind of it's good stuff but after they were confronted with this they said after careful review of the concerns being raised we have decided to turn off the JavaScript insertion immediately. But they did say that they're going to reintroduce that feature 
in the future, but only on an opt-in basis. So basically what you have to do or what you had to do until they just turned it off was if you didn't want this, you would actually have to go in as, as the uh, website creator, you would have to go in and turn off this feature. And now it's just off by default. And once GoDaddy finally re-implements it, they're gonna allow you to opt into it. You won't have to remember to turn this off or know about it and turn it off. And I could imagine that if you're running a website on GoDaddy or any other host, and you're having performance problems that they might want you to turn this feature on so they can use it for debugging. That that would seem to me a, a realistic way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's something that you probably don't really want or need to have on all the time, but maybe a web developer would want to turn this on for troubleshooting purposes. That's a great example of, and probably really the only example of when something like this should be turned on. Okay, so Josh, do you want to make $2 million? Wow, $2 million. I could do a lot with that money. All you need to do is find some iOS vulnerabilities for remote iOS jailbreaks. If you find something in WhatsApp, iMessage, or a couple other things, you'd only get a million. And if it's Chrome, you get a half a million. But these are big bug bounties. Now, bug bounties exist. A lot of um, developers, a lot of companies offer bug bounties because the idea is if someone finds the bug, we're going to pay them for the work they did because it'll help us to make our product more secure. But here, they want to do this to be able to jailbreak iOS devices. Bug bounties are sort of a unique thing because there, there's a lot of uh, different motivations behind bug bounty programs. There are bug bounty programs where the actual creator of some product is offering money for researchers who want to try to find vulnerabilities and help them improve the product. So they, they, it makes sense for a company to want to pay you for, for your time in helping them fix things. But there are also bug bounty programs run by these independent agencies that sometimes, in fact, this particular one, Zerodium, one of the things that they do is they sell those vulnerabilities to unspecified governments. So this isn't really about jailbreaking then? What this company is interested in is getting people who have the capability, who are really brilliant, brilliant hackers and can find these vulnerabilities and, and find how to exploit them. If they can get those vulnerabilities before Apple gets them and can patch them, then they can sell the information about the details of how those vulnerabilities work to basically the highest bidder, which is mostly going to be governments. From their website, this is a quote, they say, who are Zerodium's customers? And they say they're mainly government organizations in need of specific and tailored cybersecurity capabilities and or protective solutions to defend against zero day attacks. Well, we know they're mostly probably being used for offensive reasons, meaning that they're using these bugs to attack somebody else or to break into somebody's system, you know, who maybe a suspected terrorist, you know, maybe this is being used for good purposes, but it could also be used <laughs> by governments that you may not like to spy on you or people that you know or support. It's, this is really enticing to think, oh gosh, I could make 2 million bucks all at once, you know, or even a million or even 500,000. Those, those all sound like great payouts, but you also have to consider who is ultimately going to end up with that, uh, with that bug and how they are going to use it. They could use it against you. 
They could use it against, you know, people that you love and support. So be careful about bug bounties. They're, they're a great thing, but, you know, from the perspective of, you know, a company running its own bug bounty program, but they can be kind of sketchy when it comes to, oh yeah, we'll sell it to the highest bidder. Well, $2 million is a heck of a lot of money for a bug bounty. This is for an iOS remote jailbreak with persistence, which means... Yes. Well, so, so basically you can think about... I don't know if, if all of our listeners have necessarily heard about jailbreaking, but essentially it's, it's kind of a way that you can open up some more capabilities of your iOS device, but doing it in a way that's completely unauthorized by Apple. And you can notably install software that's not available on the App Store. Exactly. Right. So essentially how it works is you take advantage of some vulnerability that somebody has found in an existing current version of iOS, and then you exploit that vulnerability on purpose on your own device to jailbreak it. Well, jailbreaking can also be done by malicious actors to break into your device too. And install software that they want to install that you don't know about. Right. Spy software. And it's certainly possible to do that. Because iOS is so difficult to break into, that's why they're able to pay out these huge, huge bounties for, for people who want to make a little money. Okay. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners are actually going to hunt for bugs. And if you do, drop us a line and tell us about it. We'll keep it confidential. We won't say anything. But it is actually an interesting process to search for these. $2 million, though, that's someone really wants that kind of bug for that kind of money. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, it's worth mentioning that a Apple does have a bug bounty program for certain types of things for iOS, but they do not have a bug bounty program for Macs. Zerodium currently offers $100,000 for some specific Mac OS Safari bugs. Apple doesn't have any bug bounty program at all for Macs. Okay, that's enough for this week. That was a lot of interesting news, and we'll be back again in a week. Until then, Josh, stay secure. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com. <laughs>